this week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, first and foremost, I think just invest in your employees. I think listen to them, have open, honest, ongoing conversations with them. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, none of us are perfect, but there's, you know, a lot we can learn and just talking to our employees and figuring out what they're looking for. I think that goes for, you know, retaining good employees and also recruiting the best talent. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, said, uh, interesting, he said, a paycheck will buy one kind of loyalty, but nothing can substitute for a few well-chosen, sincere words of praise. And I think that goes a long way. It's often understated with our employees. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things intervention and investor. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com, and pretty much any podcast platform out there. Boston Scientific can help you advance, connect, and equip your practice with NextLab. NextLab is a suite of solutions and partnerships tailored to meet the needs of your OBL or cardiovascular ASC. NextLab goes beyond Boston Scientific's medical devices to provide ways to reduce expenses and increase efficiencies in your business so you can focus on patient care. Whether you have an established lab or are thinking about opening one, Boston Scientific can help. Visit bostonscientific.com slash nextlab. Today we've got uh, Krishna Manava back. Welcome, Krishna. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, the episode that you were on with Chaz just released last week. I think it's gone really well with lots of great feedback. So it's gone viral. It's gone viral. Everybody <laughs> who has not heard it, who's listening to this, needs to go back and listen to that one <laughs> as a precursor to this one. And then we have Kristen Longwell. Uh, welcome, Kristen. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Sure. And and Kristen, you know, the audience kind of already knows about uh, knows Krishna. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? and what you do at Vivascular. Sure, uh, absolutely. Um, so like you said, my name's Kristen. I'm the VP of Operations for Vive, uh, which is Dr. Monova's private practice in OBL. I'm a registered vascular technologist by trade, so went to ultrasound school. Um, Dr. Monova and I sort of crossed paths for the first time in 2011 um, when we worked together at a, a community hospital to open up a non-invasive vascular lab. Um, so I was there for several years, uh, finished up my master's while I was there, and um, left to uh, take on some other opportunities outside of um, that smaller community hospital. Uh, Dr. Monover reached out in 2019. I was working at a, one of the larger hospital systems in Columbus and just kind of explained what he was looking to do. And so I said, sure, this sounds exciting. So, um, you know, we've known each other and kind of worked together for about 11 years now, and we work together very well and just have a mutual level of respect for each other. And um, so here we are back together. That's great. And I, I apologize. I said Vive Vascular, but it's Vive Vascular. Well, Aaron, you've, you know, your French, you know, knowledge um, <laughs> actually right. plays into that. So for the uh, educated uh, French speaking, uh, Vive is probably, probably accurate, but Vive we do for, for the common man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so excited to have you guys on. Today, we're going to talk about staffing the OBL. We got a bunch of questions from the audience, which I'm excited to get to. And, but we're going to first kind of start with our own questions that we wrote up uh, that we think are kind of high yield points. So, and, and this came up a lot when, when I, when I pulled the other OBL owners I know out there, guys like Mike Watts, Brett Weichman, uh, you know, Mary Constantino, it's like, 
where do you start with staffing? And so maybe you guys can kind of tell the story, like it's probably working a story there, right? Like how, when you guys first started, like what were you thinking? Like what were the essentials that you needed when you started? I think we can jump right off of Kristen's intro actually, because yeah, uh, when I had the, the notion to, to do this, I'm like, who do I start with? And the first person in my Rolodex was Kristen who kind of sells herself short, but you know, during the years that we were no longer working together directly at the hospital, she went and got her MBA. So on paper, she had all the qualifications and we had just such a good chemistry as she was a technical director of our vascular lab and we went through accreditation processes and, and all that. So she was the first person and I'm like, Kristen, will you go on this crazy journey with me? And she left, you know, a, a very nice position with, and she'd really um, advanced through a lot of, a lot of positions and she just took the leap with me. So that was critical to get her um, because I knew that, you know, starting this, uh, the, the practice in OBL, uh, I needed uh, a director to really help me. I needed to sign her on a few months before opening so we could start tackling a lot of the pre-opening stuff. Yeah. And so Kristen, what was it about Krishna's pitch that made you want to kind of pivot and switch gears and take this crazy risk? Yeah, I think that's a good question and, and goes back to a lot of why people may may want to go work in an OBL or why an OBL looks attractive. I think, um, you know, first and foremost, you've got to be on board with with who the people are. And um, Dr. Monova has a very good reputation in the community, um, both the community hospital that we were in and then also just in the Columbus market in general. So I think um, just having worked with him, you know, knowing um, him both on a personal level and then clinically as well was, you know, definitely a driving factor in that. And um, just being excited about what we can do and how we could kind of disrupt the the care that's currently delivered and and kind of take it to the next level. And so you took on the position of, is it, do we call it office manager? What, what was the initial role that you had kind of signed up for? Yeah. So I think the initial role was director of operations. And I think whether you decide to hire an office manager, director position, you know, I think um, at the end of the day, the job responsibilities are very similar no matter what the role is, the title of the role is. Yeah. And so did you have an idea of where to start in terms of what, okay, first we need a MA, we need a nurse. Tell us about your kind of line of thinking when you guys first started. Yeah. So I think, I mean, to back up just a bit, I think um, the first line of business is kind of to look at things from, you know, the big picture and decide what do you want to do in-house and what are you going to outsource, so to speak. Um, so I think the first step, even prior to hiring myself, was having a consulting firm um, and, and doing just that, trying to figure out what are you going to, what are you going to, who do you need to hire to fill these roles? What all do you want to do inside the four walls of, of your building? And then what can you have help, um, you know, through third party, you know, companies, for example. So, um, that was kind of the first line of business for us is figuring out, um, that piece of it first. Yeah. The consulting firm. So we used a, a firm, uh, accountable, accountable physician advisors and, they really helped hold our hand through all of this initially. And we had to, we could divide what was in-house in, in our walls versus, you know, who would work remotely as part of the team, but they all kind of go hand in hand in staffing. And there's some crossover too, right? So you have your typical in-house stuff, your MAs, your nurses, your rad techs, ultrasound techs, so front office people, so forth. But all the stuff that sometimes doesn't come to the tip of your tongue, like 
the out out of house people, the billing, RCM folks, your consulting firm, legal, accounting, IT, EMR support, housekeeping, you know, marketing, web developing, branding. I can go on HR, um, which is an important one, which we'll touch on, and um, supply chain and purchasing. So all of that stuff, whether it's in-house or out-of-house, it all kind of goes into staffing, right? Yeah. And, and you know, that the whole consulting firm thing came up with a conversation with Mary Constantino not too long ago where she said, you know, they can be really expensive. They can be like cost prohibitively expensive when you're starting out. Any advice on that? And did you guys shop around or was it recommended, you know, from somebody else? How did you find that consulting firm? And did you find it to be kind of worth their, you know, worth the money? Absolutely. And the sing single biggest thing for me, you know, I interviewed about four and the one, the model that I settled with that I liked um, was one where uh, the firm I went with, accountable uh, physician advisors, wanted no equity in my practice. Right. Uh, so that was huge for me. Plus, you know, for me, I got lucky. They happened to be local. And we yeah. just connected at the exact right time and we just clicked. Um, so the fit was also equally important too. So. Yeah. So ultimately, uh, I went with a firm that upfront may have been a little bit more expensive, but in the long run, you know, a piece of my business is, you know, I retained a hundred percent of my, my business. Yeah. So, so they're helping you. So you're telling them what kind of practice you want to build and they're, they're the ones advising you, telling you, okay, you need these people to make that happen. Are they actually recruiting those people for you? So the business plan also included the staffing model based on the type of practice we wanted to, the type of procedures we wanted to do. Um, so then we deviated some, but uh, that, that did give us a framework to, to start with our initial hiring. And they also helped me in, in hiring and bringing on our initial nurses and techs and, and the interview process and setting up our HR policies. So they, they were very very helpful in that, or in the early stages where Kristen and I, this was new to us. Yeah. And, and like Kristen, were they pointing you to like ZipRecruiter or what, how did they, how did they help you find people? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, that that process has kind of evolved over time too. I think, you know, we were really lucky in the beginning that we almost got to hand select our initial crew. Um, you know, you have to keep in mind when you're starting up that you're, it's a, a small group of people that you're bringing on right out of the gate in the first place. Um, so, you know, partially through our own various industry relationships, people that we had worked with previously, everybody that started with us initially, we either knew um, firsthand or was kind of recommended to us by somebody that we did know. And tell us, what, what was that initial crew? First six months, who, who was showing up for work? Million dollar question there. So uh, good question. I think uh, when we first started, we had two RNs, we had two RTs, uh, we had one ultrasound tech, and then we also had a front desk. I will say, I mean, obviously those are, those are very important positions. I think the front desk, you can't underestimate. I think, you know, finding somebody that's energetic, somebody that's, you know, looking at all of the right things that you want them to be looking at. I mean, that's who's going to answer your phone calls when you have a referring physician call or a dialysis unit that's got a clotted access. So I think, that's definitely something I would pay close attention to is who you're putting up front and who is going to be forward facing, not only for patients, but also for referring providers, referring units, et cetera. And were, were all those people 
full time? They were all full time. Yep. Full-time. We had one nurse that worked 30 hours a week and not 40, but um, the rest of them were all 40 hour a week employees. And were you guys paying them by the hour or salaries? So most of our employees are paid hourly. Um, there's a couple exceptions. I think the leadership positions, um, our you know physician, our our physician assistant, um, those are you know salaried employees. But outside of that, everybody is hourly. So you know our front desk person, you know, was not only answering phone calls but also helping stock the rooms and helping put supplies away. And I think that's what you have to go into those first few hires looking for is somebody that's willing to do whatever it takes to get this thing up and running. So along those lines, I'm going to jump into actually some of the questions from the audience. Don Garbett asked, what's the minimum skeleton crew you need to staff your lab? And it sounds like the answer depends on what you want to do, right? And where you want to start, how many docs you have and so forth. But it sounds like that was a minimum skeleton crew that you started out with and you kind of grew off of that. Is that correct? Yeah, we had, I think, seven to start with, Kristen. Um, now, two yeah. years later, we're up to about 14, so we've we've pretty much yeah. doubled. But we had a one-room OBL, one physician when we started, and uh, a clinic, uh, you know, sort of practice, and the, uh, the new ultrasound lab. So three components, unlike some where maybe there's an established practice and you're tacking on an OBL, which is you know, not, as, not as significant of a startup. But so, but yeah, starting with a, a seven-man efficient, crew was uh worked well for us and and you know aparna bahedi she she wanted to know when you're first starting out and you can't justify a full-time ir tech financially what do you do it's it's hard to find part-time people is that when you reach out to the you know industry partners and they kind of help find per you know like i guess almost like locum style or per diem employees yeah that was nice so we have several um, local health systems where there's uh, curious staff, whether it's nurses or RTs, who would love for um, to be, you know, uh, contingent. And so we had a nice little pool of contingent RTs that would come and do a shift and get a little outpatient experience and, and learn about what we did. So that was nice and very helpful in, in the beginning, would you say, Kristen? Yeah. Yep. Once we got to the point where we had, you know, sort of consistent volumes where we could hire a second full-time person, the contingent was definitely very helpful. And, you know, you get leads not only from people that you know, but I mean, you kind of alluded to industry partners, reps, things like that. Um, you know, just kind of, you'll be surprised who who all is out there that may be interested in picking up a couple extra hours when you start talking to people. Yeah. I've, you know, when I was briefly in the OBL situation, there were techs willing, you know, a lot, a lot of industry reps are former techs, right? And sometimes they want to keep their skills up they and they're willing to scrub or work extra, you know, especially if it's helping you build your practice. So I, I think that that's another good resource, you know, is just industry. That's where industry can be really be helpful, right? Oh, completely. There were days where we were short and, uh, you know, the rep would more than happy to um, help in any way they could in the lab, whether it's just grabbing supplies or mopping the floors. Um, but they, they brought value in so many different ways. So a couple more questions from Don Garbett, cause it seems like he wants some specific answers on like RNs. Um, you know, do you need to, you guys start with two RNs. Is it, is that essential to have one RN to run a room and then one for pre and post-op? Is that kind of why you started with two? Yep. Um, I think exactly. You've got it. Uh, we we started off with two full-time techs or two full-time techs and two full-time nurses. 
um, one of the full-time techs we ended up kind of replacing with with some contingent help and we can get in to that later when we talk a little bit about unexpected um, you know staffing staffing situations which we'll all face at some point but I think as far as the nurses go you know if you've only got one procedure for the day you could probably get away with one nurse that's following the patient before the procedure in and then after but really outside of that situation, you, you've got to have somebody for pre and post and then also somebody in the room monitoring the patient and giving meds and all of that. Yeah. And then same thing with techs, I guess, like one tech is kind of floater or helping grab supplies and or is setting up the room for the next patient while the other one's scrubbed in, sort of tag team kind of yeah, approach. The techs work, uh, you know, almost interchangeably, but together. I mean, one is for me, I have a portable C-arm so one is physically yeah. running the C arm, um, and one is, uh, helping me table side. So, uh, we have two techs to start with. Now we're up to three techs because the third tech is, you almost need a rotation. So I, I've got three now and some days we're like, three's not enough. Yeah. That, that's a good point. You forget about the C arm. Somebody's got to run the C arm. <laughs> exactly. And that is key. I mean, we put our C-arm, you know, I can sometimes move it around, but for the most part, you still need a tech to, to collimate and do a lot of things that you don't have table-side controls for. Yeah. So since we're on the topic of like what's, a, you know, I think we've covered kind of what's essential. Um, are you guys doing, Kristen, you mentioned you were an ultrasound tech, right? Yep. Were you also scanning patients like follow-up or, you know, during, you know, clinic visits? So I have. I, that's a good question. And I think kind of um, to piggyback off of that, I think when you're looking for somebody in a leadership role or really any role, just looking for somebody that's got a background that maybe could be multi-purpose. And for me, that, you know, could be helping room a clinic patient. It could be helping scan a patient that needs an ultrasound. So um, we the way that we did it, we hired a full time ultrasound tech that uh, Dr. Monova and I had both worked with previously. Um, he does a really great job for us, but certainly there, you know, with COVID and everything else that's happened in between, there's definitely been times that I'm scanning patients as well. That wasn't, um, we didn't go into that with that being my primary responsibility, but certainly it's something that I can help out with. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, definitely a plus that you have that, that, that skill set to kind of fill in there. I don't think there's too many, and there's too many RVT MBAs around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta, they, everybody's moving up, you know, you gotta. You gotta, I mean, that that's that would be like amazing to have uh, an RVT who can wear all those hats, both those hats, you know. Um, so that, that's actually, you're probably a rarity, I'm sure, Kristen. Certainly, we're biased, of course, but I, I would say, you know, whether it's a, a RVT, RT, RN, I think any of those combos could definitely be helpful. Yeah, yeah, and too, so, yeah, because ultrasound techs, like, just when uh, you know, previously I had you know a vein clinic. Good ultrasound techs, very hard to find. Would you guys, would you guys agree? Like somebody who just knows vascular ultrasound to a T. Yep, I would agree. We've got this guy, um, Kenny. He's sort of like the, he, he's, he runs the show around here. So Kenny um, is our ultrasound tech, lead ultrasound tech. You better hope he doesn't listen to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he also was functioned as an MA for the first several months. So, you know, he'd be rooming patients. We'd see patients in clinic in, this, in the ultrasound room. Um, so he'd room them, help me with getting their history, and also do the ultrasound scanning. So, you know, it, it was, we were worked hand in hand together and he loved it. But yeah. sometimes he'd get called away to, you know, fix a light fixture or unclog a toilet and Kristen would have to jump in. So 
Kenny was our handyman slash ultrasound tech slash MA. So if you can get someone like that, it is is awesome starting out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, Dr. Monovan, I've talked a lot about just the the mix of patients that we see in the outpatient center and kind of to hit on your point earlier, Aaron, I think it is hard to find good techs. And I think in this setting, it's super important in every setting, you could argue, but certainly in the setting, you've got a lot of patients that are diabetic and calcified arteries and they're not easy scans. So I think you definitely want to invest in somebody that's got experience and that can help the physician out. You know, that's that's what leads to your procedures in the OBL. So it's definitely an important role. Yeah, like a like an ultrasound tech, you want somebody seasoned at least a few years under the belt, I would say, you know, with vascular. What about an MA though? An MA, I mean, somebody out of training, middle of career, late career, like what, you know, what's your perspective on MAs? <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish we could give you good advice on this one. The yeah. MA position has been our single most difficult position to fill in the last two years. Would you say, Kristen? Wow. I would agree 100%. And I think um, just talking to people um, in Columbus, um, you know, large and small companies, I think everybody's having that same problem, especially a good one is hard to find. And I think, you know, the the path that we kind of took, like Dr. Monavis said, is um, our ultrasound tech could be an MA. Um, our nurses early on when we weren't busy with procedures and are going back and forth between clinic and the lab, um, they were our MAs. So I think we found sort of a non-traditional way to fill that gap early on. And it's something that, you know, especially for these people that are working, you know, in ultrasound roles or nursing or even a rad tech. I mean, they're they're highly skilled, highly educated, you know, individuals. And really, it's just a matter of teaching them how you want them to room the patients and how we want to chart and, and all of those things. I think the continuity of care is definitely an important piece of the, you know, the MA role. Yeah, because like turnover can be crushing, right? When you just keep having to retrain people over and over again. And the MA, it's, it's almost like an office manager role because they're the, they're the ones interacting with the patient sometimes most, you know, because uh, they're checking them in, they're getting them set up, they're, they're even there as, while you're doing your consult. And so uh, I think it's important for them to have also just like a pleasant personality because it's the face of your practice, right? Yep, I agree completely. And just, you know, the professionalism and, and everything that goes along with, you know, what we're trying to to do at the end of the day. So I think, you know, like Dr. Monovan mentioned, Kenny, our ultrasound tech, it's it's something you, on the procedural side, you see these, you're used to seeing, um, you know, the patients once they get to you, but you're not always used to seeing what happens before they get to you. So I would argue, too, in the early days, everybody in our practice learned a lot more about just vascular medicine in general outside of the procedural side of things and kind of what, what happens before they get to you. It kind of, it helps tie the whole picture together. And um, I think that was very helpful for everybody that maybe didn't go into this realizing they were going to be playing a medical assistant role. Yeah. And how about scribes? I mean, do you guys have scribes, virtual scribe, but how are you guys doing that? We've looked into different ways and so the the EMR we use, um, it's it's not as conducive uh, to virtual scribe. Um, it can be done, but there's some costs. So we uh, generally, when I'm in rooms seeing patients, we have our uh, we call them clinical specialists, but the whoever that may staff member that may be does a lot of the scribing. Um, but I still, at the end, I am the one type hand typing the notes and charts uh, through our EMR. Do you have like a vision for how that'll change in the future, Krishna? Because that, you know, it's getting old, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Fortunately, our EMR is, you know, it's not as labor intensive as the amount of input you have to put in, but still, no, I don't have a great solution. I've heard some really good solutions with virtual scribes, but uh, I'm sort of in a wait and see kind of mode. Yeah, there's some neat uh, AI-powered stuff coming out, um, I guess, in the near future where right. it can just take a conversation and, and put it into a structured note, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to see. You know, I'm sure there's going to be some cool stuff on the horizon. Yeah, hopefully maybe even at OES, OEIS this uh, June. Maybe we'll see some right. there. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is, you know, as we've moved along, I keep hearing just feedback from other OBL owners, practice owners. Like I always get this feedback that I'm overstaffed. I'm heavy on staffing. You know, we have, you know, how the heck do I need 14, you know, employees for one doc? doc. Um, And, you know, it just, we feel like every single one is essential too. Um, And I think it really depends on you know, the number of patients you have going in and out of your daily practice, your procedural volume, you know, the specialty that you're in. I mean, you know, ortho, cardiology, specialties, procedure-heavy specialties require a different staffing ratio than like a primary care practice. Um, And then, you know, the technology, whether it's your EMR and and other sort of technology uh, modalities you use in the practice all, you know, require staff. Well, that's a, that's a great point, Christian. That's a great segue into our next question where we're going to talk a little about scaling up. But before we, before we talk about scaling up, let's give the audience a lay of the land. Who makes up those 14 employees? Like, let's just run through it. So right now we have three nurses, three RTs, a front office person, uh, a scheduler slash administrative assistant, the practice director, uh, alt- did I say ultrasound tech? Um, no, that's a 10. PA, yeah. myself, who else am I missing? Yeah. Uh, we have a, a yeah, pre, pre-cert, pre-auth person. Okay. Yep. One does pre-cert, pre-auth. We have a physician assistant. That's one of, um, one of those 14 people. Who else did we I think miss? that's 13. Did we include Kristen? Dr. Monova would be the 14th. Yeah. Somewhere in there. We, we fluctuate. We've gone from 13, 14, 15. It's somewhere in that range. Yeah. Yeah. So we, that, that's, that's great. That's perfect. Because that gives these people an idea of, okay, in two years, he went from seven to 14. And this is what it, you know, it takes to be like a busy, successful OBL, uh, even just with one doc. And do you, do you feel like if you brought in another doc, you would have to, how many more people do you think you'd have to hire for that? I don't think it would be a one-to-one ratio on, you know, staffing, you know, as we scale with uh, providers. Um, yeah. so I think, um, but yeah, it, it, you know, these are all good problems, right? You're growing. Um, yeah. and you know, there's other huge practices that, you know, have three, four providers and they're up to with multiple locations and they're up to 70, 80, 90 employees. So what are the biggest challenges when, when scaling up and have you guys sort of anticipated that as you grow, uh, we kind of talked about like, you know, you're kind of, it seems like you're in a sweet spot right now based on where you're at, but as you think about scaling and growing, what do you anticipate being the biggest issues? 
So I think, you know, I've, to answer the question about scaling up, you know, we, we've kind of approached each situation in a similar fashion in terms of just kind of, you know, having open conversations with our employees and seeing where the gaps are. I mean, we kind of all, I think, sort of feel where we're, you know, when we get to the point where we're bursting at the seams and everybody needs just a, a little bit more help. So kind of having a, you know, a concentrated conversation with everybody about, you know, what does everybody need help doing and then trying to approach the hiring decision in maybe, you know, more of a creative but still strategic way. Um, you know, we've filled positions that maybe we weren't necessarily planning. For example, our third rad tech, we weren't necessarily saying, you know, we need just a rad tech right now. We needed an extra set of hands in the lab. We needed, you know, a little bit more help in the recovery area, just, you know, doing things that weren't necessarily nursing tasks, but helping turnover bays and get patients changed and check sites in between, you know, their site checks and things like that. So, you know, we made the decision to hire a third rad tech and it was something that we we kind of looked at all of the existing responsibilities and then sort of reassigned responsibilities accordingly. And, you know, part of that was our rad techs build our charts for clinic. And um, so it can be simple things, but you just have to kind of be willing to think outside of the box because you don't often have the luxury of, you know, hiring three new positions at one time just because your front desk person needs help and, you know, your ultrasound tech needs help and your rad tech needs help. It's it's kind of one of those things where you just see how you can get the most bang for for your buck in terms of one position until you're ready for the next one. Yeah. So like, what do you guys do about idle time? I mean, Christian, if you have like a clinic afternoon or a clinic day, like what are the, the rad techs doing? Like, or, or you know, the scrub techs? Yeah. So <laughs> this is a, a constant, constant battle. No, no. Um, there's plenty to do. We realize in a busy practice, there's, there's always something to be done, whether it's prepping uh, charts, whether it's getting uh, the procedure schedule lined up for the next few days, um, whether it's supplies and, and housekeeping, there's all sorts of housekeeping stuff. Um, and then there's also flexibility for maybe uh, someone wants to leave early or maybe they've got so they they can, you know, flex up or down their hours a little bit. So there's a lot of creative ways internally to handle um, hand, handle some of that. I would say the the um, physician assistant has helped us in some ways, too. I mean, you have to remember when, obviously, you're opening the OBL, the doctor is going to be in, in the OR, too. So not just in the procedure lab in, in our building, but also in the operating room at, at a couple different facilities. And so um, just having the physician assistant that's there, that's able to, um, you know, see patients in clinic, that's able to order ultrasounds, that kind of keeps a lot of that stuff still functioning, even when Dr. Monov is not there. Yeah, Christian, I was going to ask, how long did it take you before you were like, we need a we need a physician assistant? I think, when did we hire our PA within about six to eight months, Kristen? Yeah, uh, she's uh, sort of a little bit non-traditional. She sort of started as a clinical specialist and did on-the-job training um, out, of, out of PA school. So she started seeing patients right about that 12-month mark, um, and she was on-the-job training for probably about four or five months prior to that. So I think right around that year mark is when we could use the help of, of a, you know, a more of a traditional PA. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about scheduling and, you know, how scheduling works. Assuming no weekends, you're an outpatient facility. How do you negotiate and make things like vacations and overtime work? Kristen, I'll ask you. Sure. Uh, I think that's something that we're all, we're all kind of faced with. I think the biggest thing in, in an OBL setting is your end size is much smaller than than in a hospital setting where you've got a, a much bigger slate of employees. So 
I think number one, you know, for like positions, we only let one person off at a time. So, you know, both of our nurses can't have the same day off. Both of our techs can't have the same day off, et cetera. What's worked well for us is set schedules, and that may not work well for everybody. I think it just depends on, you know, kind of how you run your practice and your OBL. In terms of like work-life balance for employees, that's kind of what we hear from them is it's helpful for them so that they can plan around the things that they, you know, that they've got going on. And, you know, at the same time, we're doing procedures the same days every week, which is helpful too. Right now, Dr. Monov is in the hospital on Thursdays. And so we have several of our procedural employees on 410s, which is nice, kind of allows for later coverage during the week for the add-on cases that we get. And then we also, the way that we do our afternoon. So those can be a little bit unpredictable, I think, in any procedural setting. But we we kind of schedule one tech and one nurse to be the late person per day. Um, so again, um, back to like employee satisfaction, what we were running into is, you know, maybe cases go late and you weren't expecting it. it usually for us, it ends up being the days that, that look the best that go the worst kind of thing. The ones that look busy and crazy don't usually turn out that bad. So we just sort of created the rotating ways just as a way to be respectful for them and and kind of allow them to plan that, you know, hey, I, I know I'm going to be late if cases run over this day or, you know, maybe, hey, tomorrow my kid's got something after work and I can't stay late this day. So it just gives them that freedom and, you know, also mutual respect from us just that we're, you know, understanding of what they've got going on outside of work. Yeah. Those, all those that on D clots in the afternoon are killer, right? <laughs> they don't usually come at convenient times. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, so let's talk a little bit about company culture and then we'll get into some more questions from the audience. And uh, Kristen, you and I had talked about this. Christian, we talked about it a little bit as well, because some of these questions have to do with retention is what, what did you, like, did you kind of read a book on like, hey, this is, you know, how do you approach company culture and how do you recommend others who are starting OBLs approach company culture? Because I think that that has a lot to do with retention. Do you guys have like a mission, core values, like company events? So tell us a little bit about how that works. Christian, I'll start with you. Yeah, this is a great question. And it's really kind of the heart of retention is we've learned. So when we started the practice, we're like, do we want to just start this as another medical practice? Um, there's tons of them out there. Or do we run run this like a business? And what makes successful businesses out there long-term and ha like have longevity? So we really wanted to apply business principles to the practice. And culture was, was very important. We started with very bland, standard core values and a mission statement, you know, but at one year, at sort of the one year mark, we wanted to purposefully and thoughtfully revamp them. So we had a retreat. Um, we had a company retreat. We had a leadership retreat. And we totally revamped our core values and made them very meaningful to us. And those have served us, you know, to provide a guideline and framework, even when we hire staff to find the right fit. Uh, and people who align with what we believe in with the practice. So so that was nice. Developing those and re revamping the core values w was important to us. And and we see this. I mean, there's books about this stuff. There's, you know, this is common practice in very successful businesses. Kristen, you have anything to add to that? I mean, I think I would just say, you know, I think 100% that company culture is something that you've got to focus on if you're not even just for an OBL owner, but I think for any new business, any small business or biz big business, you've got to 
differentiate yourself from your customers and you've got to get your employees on board with, you know, what you're selling, so to speak. And I think you can't underestimate the importance of a good team. And I think, you know, having a team on board that understands understands the culture and shares the same values and the beliefs that you're sharing and that you're trying to recruit for, you know, that can't be underestimated. We actually polled our staff before this podcast to kind of just see what they felt. We're like, if you were telling a friend of yours to come work for us at Vive, what would you tell them? And there were common themes amongst just our team of, you know, feeling valued, feeling like their voice was heard, feeling like they were making an impact, uh, things like that. But nowhere in there was compensation, hours. It was all about things that go back to culture. So that hit home. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting when we just asked our own staff. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I mean, this is kind of widely known at this point, but I think, you know, if you have happy employees and employees that are engaged, you don't have to do a whole lot with the customers because they can see that. And, you know, I think happy, happy employees equals happy customers. And that's how you keep your patients coming back and your referring providers interested in what you're doing. So I think it's definitely, it's definitely very important. So when we, when we talk about culture, we, you know, we often, we do, there, there's so many layers to this. Um, you yeah. know, and we show one time we showed a video, uh, Warren Buffett talking about customers and, and defining our customers. Uh, and he wants customers entering your business to feel not like they had a good experience, but they want to leave feeling delighted. And so for us, defining our customers, our customers are one, our patients, two, our referring practices and dialysis centers. And our third customer that you don't think about is our own employees. So we want our own employees to feel delighted and to deliver that spirit and that level of excitement and enthusiasm to our other customers. So layering, uh, you know, the whole culture in different ways. So we can talk about things that we do daily. Every morning we have a, a huddle at eight o'clock every morning with our team. And the huddle includes an inspirational thought or quote, and it sounds kind of cheesy, but it really sort of puts things into perspective on why we're here today. Um, we talk about safety things um, in these huddles. We talk about the schedule, things that we might expect. Uh, then we have uh, weekly sort of updates about stuff going on. We have monthly operational meetings, um, very transparent about our um, numbers, volumes, strategy, um, problems. Uh, and then we have uh, an annual uh, formal retreat um, with the staff. So there's many formal um, layers to the culture. And Kristen added in another thing that was new to me, the KPI board. Yes, your favorite. <laughs> uh, so that's just like a key performance indicator, Aaron, but just um, the idea is to work on process improvement. So I think just like Dr. Monov is saying, you know, keeping everything kind of front and center, making sure everybody knows, you know, exactly what we're working on and and having several channels of open communication. Um, you know, at the end of every operations meeting, we kind of go around table and just kind of hear how things have gone from the last month when we talked to everybody and, you know, what things are going well and what people need help with. And I think that's a, an important piece too. Measure what matters, right? The, that's what KPI, that's where I learned about KPIs. Right, right. Uh, I was looking at my bookshelf. I'm like, I know I got that book on my shelf somewhere. <laughs> but we want to create, you know, we want to create what so-called brand ambassadors, right? Of uh, yeah. uh, Of our practice. And we want people 
to, we want to instill a sense of gratitude. And that comes from the, you know, we don't call it top down, but from me down, I'm grateful every day for what we're doing for our staff and instilling that in them and in each other and treating each other as a small family run type of business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes on our, you know, we, we, we joke about the KPI process, but almost every month we have things like team building and education on there. And I think those are just important things that you don't always have the time or you don't think about stopping to do those things. And again, sometimes if, you know, people are busy and it may be hard to pull everybody together, but even if it's just for five or 10 minutes, just to, you know, learn something new about your coworkers or learn something new about, you know, a, a disease type that we don't see very often. We've, we do fun Jeopardy games. So I think just getting people together to talk about, you know, work and what we're doing at work, but also to talk about things on a more personal level too. Yeah. And I like that you, you thought of, you know, your own employee satisfaction on the same line as, you know, your referral satisfaction, patient satisfaction, because you think about, uh, it is just as important because you think about how costly turnover is, right? How much money you can lose with employee turnover. And I don't think people uh, see that or appreciate that when they're trying, you know, some of these other practices you see out there, or you hear about just burning and churning. They burn and churn patients, but they also burn and churn their own employees. And it's just not sustainable. But that obviously that's not a model anybody wants to, you know. It's uh, a setback. Follow. It's a setback for the practice. It, you know, yeah. I take it personally if we have to separate from an employee or there's some dis dissatisfaction. It 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 really kind of sometimes gets you to your core. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so that kind of brings us actually to another uh, key piece of core values is firing people. Uh, it's the worst, right? Uh, but if you have the wrong fit you got to fire them. And so like at Backtable, my co-founder is like, you know, we got to make these core values because we're going to hire by them or we're going to fire by mm -hmm. them. So if somebody's not a good fit, we're going down the list of core values and we're going to see where do they not fit and why before we make that decision. So can you guys give me, uh, give our audience some input on how firing happens and, and is there a process for it? Kristen? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you work with anybody that enjoys firing people, you're probably working with the wrong people. Um, I don't think it's anything that any of us enjoy, but certainly sometimes, unfortunately, necessary. I think, you know, the best thing you can do is just kind of like you're saying, I mean, you have core values and beliefs and, and behaviors that are acceptable. And I think if, you know, things start falling outside of that, it's something that you've, you've got to go down that path. Um, for us, we have, you know, we we would obviously talk about these things. We would um, try to improve the behaviors. I think if you look at something as simple as attendance, that's usually the simpler one that gets people. Um, when you get into the behavior-related things, the performance-related things, that, that gets a little bit trickier. But we would use like a performance improvement plan. I always say employees should never be surprised. You don't want to bring something up at their annual evaluation, which is, you know, the thing that they should have improved on all year. So I think just being transparent making sure that, you know, employees that are having issues know what the issues are and what the expected, you know, improvement is. And then, you know, ultimately, if you can't come to a mutual improvement on whatever it is that's lagging, then then you have to go down that path. I think documentation is always important. I think, um, you know, consistency is very important. And kind of like Dr. Monica said, I think, you know, showing the values that you expect to see, you've got you've to be willing to, you know, walk the walk too. Yeah. When we started the practice, I said, I'm never going to have an employee be fired. We're going to have an amazing 100% retention rate. Um, <laughs> within the first week, no joke, within the first week, we had to let an employee go. So my, 
I, I was already uh, way, way, way below my expectations. And, and it came to, re you know, I, it was a reality check for me. But, you know, we had an employee who had, um, uh, there were some concerns, non-clinical concerns, and uh, we had to part ways within the first week. And this was uh, a key, a critical team member. So we had to pivot and shift, but we had to learn on the, on the fly very quickly a lot of HR principles that I didn't know very well. Kristen had some knowledge of, but this is where our advisory and consulting firm really helped a lot initially. Mm -hmm. Um, and then over time, we, um, we learned a lot more of the HR aspect of the practice and, and how to handle, um, you know, when it doesn't work out with an employee, but, uh, but it was definitely a learning curve. Yeah. That's a good point with HR. Does that tend to like kind of fall on the lap? Like, I guess the director, uh, would, would handle that until you get like a full-time HR person, Kristen? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's sort of been an evolution over time, too. Um, like Dr. Monova said in the beginning, um, we did rely on the consult our consultants quite a bit for a lot of the HR things. So not just hiring, firing, but um, policies and, and just a lot of HR support. And I think as you go and, you know, myself, I can say as I learned more of this stuff, you know, now now we do a lot more of that stuff internally than than relying on our consultants for everything. But, you know, I came from a background of primarily hospital um, based where you had a whole HR department supporting you. And so, you know, you were having the tough conversations and you were putting those people on performance improvement plans, but you weren't the one filling out the unemployment papers afterwards and you weren't the one doing all of those things. So yeah. I think it's definitely a, an evolution of something that you learn over time. And, um, you know, it's just one of those situations where you've got to wear multiple hats and, and you know, you figure it out as you go. Yeah. One thing we've learned along the way is when you have... Um, the so-called disgruntled or toxic employee, you have to have some amount of backbone and, uh, and there's only so much tolerance because it starts to affect your really, really good motivated employees adversely. And mm -hmm. the more they see you tolerate that, that type of behavior, the more they lose belief and respect in what we're doing. So I learned that, you know, along the way that, um, at some point you, you, you can't let things keep happening. Yeah. That's, I think that's really good advice, um, with the toxic employee. Cause it, it happens and it's outside of your control. Like something looks really good on paper, interviews well, you bring them in and there, it's just, you know, a wild card, but let's do some questions from the audience as we wrap things up. Uh, the first one is from Brett Weichman. He asks, uh, of course, the huge, more global issue is finding the staffing and then keeping them. The great resignation particularly hurts healthcare. In the plus column for OBL is more regular hours, no call, lower acuity cases for the most part, which amounts to a better lifestyle. The question is whether a more comfortable environment is enough to compete with the dollars being thrown around for travelers. Yeah. And so this goes back to when we polled our, our staff and- it wasn't necessarily the compensation. Now, of course, we feel like we're very competitive with our pay, um, with all of our staff. Um, the hours are good. Like you said, no call, no weekend. So we advertise that up front when we're recruiting, but we're really looking for that fit. And so when people come in to interview, we really are seeing who demonstrates the, the, the values we, we cherish. Um, and that really um, sort of helps guide us um, in who we bring in. Um, and, you know, we've been fortunate, you know, 
with this great resignation, four and a half million people quit their jobs in November, 4.3 million in December. And, uh, you know, 500,000 healthcare workers out of that, you know, four and a half million. It's crazy. So we've been very fortunate, but we do feel going back to that, the culture, um, the framework is there with the hours and the OBL setting. But really, I, I think the culture is really what has kept us solid. Yeah. Chris, I'm going to have you answer this next one. Uh, this is from Lincoln Patel here in Dallas, Texas. He says, initial salaries are relatively easy. How do you decide on raises? Do you try to keep everyone equal? Anything specifically you have found that helps you retain your best people? I think we already talked about culture, but in terms of salaries and, and raises. Sure. Um, so we do. I mean, uh, you know, we we hire people and, you know, their initial salary is based on on several things. Most important probably is um, years of experience as well. Um, and then after, you know, once they've started, we do um, annual evaluations. So annual evaluations, we review everything from performance to compensation. Um, it's something that we look at yearly. And, you know, we've been we've been fortunate the last couple of years, even through the pandemic, that, you know, annual raises is something that we were still able to do. I think having some consistency and th the fact that employees know what the process is and that you are going to evaluate that at least one time per year is important. Dr. Monova, you know, when we we try to attract the top talent and so we are you have to look at employees like an investment. I think you bring people in and you want to be competitive. You know, if you want to attract the best talent, you have to be competitive with, you know, the hospital settings and the outpatient settings and then looking at the compensation at least once per year to determine what's, you know, what that increase looks like and not to say that that's guaranteed every year for our employees, but two years in, we're fortunate enough to say that we've been able to do annual increases each year. I don't know, Dr. Monova, if you'd have anything you'd like to add to that. No, no. I mean, I think I think you said it very well. Um, we try to be purposeful. We try to be um, standard in, in the way we approach it. But at the same time, having a small private practice that we control, we can make decisions and we can um, be very flexible uh, and very individual on, on certain decisions on salaries. This is a question from Tim Yates in uh, down in South Florida. How have the cuts changed your battle plan compared to prior years? And do the cuts seem to be directing us toward the ASC model? How lean have you guys become because of the cuts? So we've made a, a, a decision. We are not going to let any sort of reimbursement cuts affect how we compensate how we hire staff it may shift the ways we um you know we, we strategically the way we go with the practice whether it's a model that incorporates an asc or whether it's a, you know, a hybrid or whatever that may be but nowhere in the decision making is staff salaries compensation at all a factor for for the way we do things i i just don't think the optics of that i don't think it would be received well at an employee level I agree. I would just say too, like transparency is the best policy. And, you know, we, we're all dealing with reimbursement cuts. It's something that if you're in this field is almost an annual conversation at least, but just making sure the employees know what we're basing our decisions off of. And maybe, maybe it's that we're going to, you know, drag our feet a little bit on the next position. And hopefully when you're growing, you don't have to do that either. But I think just making sure that the employees are engaged and understand, you know, the thought behind some of these decisions that we're making. And a lot of them do have to do with things like reimbursement cuts and, you know, things that we don't have a lot of control of internally. But we're so yeah. open and transparent about the challenges that we face as a business, as a practice, that our employees who feel ownership in the practice, they're like, look, let's chip in. If we can handle that extra procedure today, 
you know, and it keeps the practice sustainable, they, they're bought in and, and it's so yeah. helpful when they are. Yeah. That buy-in is key, right? Um, and it sounds like you guys have built a culture that makes that buy-in sort of a, an organic, natural process. It's not something that it's forced on, on to them. It can't be forced. I mean, it's gotta be just part of the culture. And so, you know, I think this has been a great discussion. I think there's a lot of great pearls in here, guys. Uh, we're coming up on the hour. Anything, any last thoughts uh, for the audience who might be uh, either guys like, you know, we mentioned that uh, have been doing this for a little while or anybody new out there who's looking to start their own OBL? Christian, I'll start with you. Well, I think um, I think staffing for us has been, is the biggest outflow bucket of our expenses. It, it varies with supplies month to month, but overall annually staffing and supplies are our two biggest outflow buckets. And staffing also is sort of our ongoing conversation between Kristen and myself. I mean, staffing is, we talk daily, twice a day sometimes, and staffing is takes up 40% of our conversation if at a minimum. So it's definitely a, a very important topic. I've been looking at creative ways to, for staffing models and creative ways to help retention and, uh, and culture. And, you know, I look at tech companies and what, what they do. And, and we all hear about these stories about tech companies like Google offering free food. Fridays, apparently they have free beer and wine. Facebook has an arcade and barbershop and dry cleaning at their uh, Menlo Park headquarters. So there's all sorts of cool stuff. Microsoft has like sporting equipment and bikes that employees can take out during the workday. So I've been like thinking about ways, how can a medical practice break the mold of our traditional yeah. structure? And, you know, I, so as we move on to phase two, which I've talked to you a little bit about my excitement, but things like um, uh, a little fitness room, a uh, maybe a little rooftop terrace, uh, a bourbon lounge, and maybe if there's room, a little golf simulator, but things like that, if we can do it, I think would be really cool ways to sort of break the traditional mold of sort of when medical uh, employees come to work and the way the workplace is designed. But so you know, it's it's just interesting to see what, what options are out there to kind of break this mold. Uh, I just say, I think, you know, first and foremost, I think just invest in your employees. I think listen to them, have open, honest, ongoing conversations with them. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, none of us are perfect, but there's, you know, a lot we can learn in just talking to our employees and figuring out what they're looking for. I think that goes for, you know, retaining good employees and also recruiting the best talent. Sam Walton said, uh, you know, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, said, uh, interesting, he said, a paycheck will buy one kind of loyalty, but nothing can substitute for a few well-chosen, sincere words of praise. And I think that goes a long way. It's often understated with our employees. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that I guess you know, feedback, that communication, the transparency, I think that all goes into it. It sounds like you guys are, have already built an amazing culture and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys got coming up in the next couple of years, uh, as I visit Columbus every, you know, three, four months. So I'll definitely be stopping by. Aaron, you're sounds welcome good. anytime. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. This is like, I think this is a very important topic. And I was telling Kristen this yesterday, where I never, I haven't received so many questions from the audience uh, on any podcast as this one. 
You know, I just, I sent out a few texts and people are like, oh yeah, let me, I mean, Don was like, let me send you an email. And it was just like, Bruh. and so people just are super interested in this because it's so challenging, right? And it is, like you said, it's one of the major outflows of your, of your business. So you, it's got, it's incredibly important. Culture is incredibly in important for retention. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more at, uh, upcoming conferences like OEIS. I hope to see everybody in Vegas. It's June 24th to 25th. Just want to give a plug for it for those guys because I think it's an incredible resource. And I hope to see both of you guys there, if possible. If you can yeah. take time out of the out Likewise, of the Aaron. Likewise. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having us. Pleasure being here. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.